everyone. This is Rachel Feller, co-host of The Pulse Podcast. Today's guest is Ankit Jain, founder of Infinitus Systems. Infinitus automates tedious and time-consuming administrative processes across the healthcare ecosystem with AI in order to create time for healthcare to improve access, adherence, and affordability. Infinitus is the only solution that automates the entire phone call process to complete benefit verifications and prior authorizations. It returns that hard-to-find information so that providers have the most comprehensive view of treatment coverage and can confidently move forward with a patient's treatment plan. The company has raised money from Google Ventures, Kleiner Perkins, Code2, and a number of other healthcare luminaries. I hope that you enjoy the conversation. Welcome, Ankit. Thank you so much for being with us today on The Pulse. We have a tradition of asking our guests this icebreaker question. What did you want to be when you grew up? First of all, Rachel, thanks for having me uh, for this conversation. I grew up in India, and if you were a kid in the early to mid-90s, you just wanted to be a cricket player because cricket in India was really taking off at that point. And I grew up playing street cricket and then starting to play uh, cricket a little more formally. I was never very good, but I always had the dream and aspiration of growing up and being a cricket player. Wow. Do you still play today? Uh, with my six-year-old in our living room is about the extent of it today. <laughs> well, your founding story is particularly interesting, and I'd love to hear more about it. Based on your experiences at Google and how the Spark story of Infinitus arose in your personal life, could you share some of that aha moment with our listeners and what made you decide to start the company? In 2017, I returned to Google for a second tour of duty there. And this time I, I returned to start Google's AI Venture Fund along with a colleague. And we were investing in vertical and horizontal applications of AI. Uh, this is right around the time when the Transformer paper was written. So all the stuff that is now powering chat GPT and BARD and all the, the breakthroughs, 2017 is when the seminal paper was written and this gold rush started in some ways. And I started investing increasingly in, in healthcare and starting to get to know a little bit about healthcare. But in 2018, Google at Google I.O., which is their annual developer conference, demoed something called Google Duplex. You could say, hey, Google, make me a reservation at a spa or a salon or a restaurant. And if there was Open Table or Resi or one of those online reservation services, it would do it instantaneously. But if there wasn't one of those, the Google Assistant would make a phone call and the machine would talk to the human on the other side and make a reservation for you and then confirm that the reservation was made. It was incredible to watch that demo because it was bringing speech recognition, natural language processing, speech synthesis, all in a tightly coupled loop within 500 milliseconds. So I came back home that night and I showed it to my wife and I said, Shelby, you have to see this demo of Google Duplex and how it can automate a phone call between a human and, and a machine. And I played it for her and I was gaga about the technology and at the very end of it, she said, that's really cool. But these great engineers that came up with something that's mind bending in many ways, the best thing they could think of was to make spa reservations. I'm like, what do you mean? It's a machine talking to a human. And she said, you know, I wish someone would do this for healthcare. And by way of background, she spent the last decade and a half in different parts of healthcare on the administrative side of things, whether it was a home health and hospice clinic at the oncology department at Stanford Healthcare, at a urgent care center, and then for the last six years, a large pharmaceutical manufacturer. And she said at every single one of these institutions, there's tens, if not hundreds of people 
that are just making phone calls, phone calls to exchange data, phone calls to move the chains of healthcare forward, things that most of us don't see as patients, but things that happen in the healthcare back office. And she said, I wish someone would automate that because no one who joined healthcare joined healthcare to wait on hold, to collect information over a phone call. They joined healthcare to serve patients. And so if you could automate these phone calls, you would unlock time for all these people to spend that time with patients and their families. There's no better spark story than one that arises naturally in the context of your day-to-day life and based on past work. And I'm sure your colleagues at Google are excited to see how you've taken that technology forward into the healthcare industry. Many of us are familiar with the concept of clinician burnout, but we may not realize the extent to which time is wasted on back office operations with these clinicians, as it's not really something we as patients see other than perhaps a long wait at the doctor's office. Could you share a little bit more about the unmet need that your company and technology is solving for with both prior authorizations and benefits verification on the back end? Absolutely. I think it's always helpful in healthcare, at least for me, to step back and think from the perspective of the patient. And then you fill in the gaps in terms of in terms of explaining why certain things happen a certain way. And so let's say I'm a 65-year-old male who's had diabetes for most of my life and I'm starting to have some difficulty with my vision. I go to an ophthalmologist and they do an exam on me and they tell me that you've got something called macular degeneration. I first of all go, that's a big set of words. What does macular degeneration mean? And they explain it to me and they say, don't worry, there's medications for macular degeneration. I'm like, oh, great. How can I get it? They're like, well, these medications are specialty medications. They can be very expensive. They can range from $10,000 to $100,000. And the way they're administered is you come back into the office every two to five months, depending on the medication, two to six months. And we inject the medication into your eyeball. Wait, wait, wait. You you do what? You inject the medication into your eyeball. You're like, that sounds scary. So first, you know, there's this scary thing called macular degeneration, which you're just learning about. Then you learn that someone's going to inject your eyeball. But then the doctor says, don't worry. This works for most patients. And it's something that will really make you feel better. I really believe based on my diagnosis, this is the right medication for you. Like, great. How do I get started? And this is where that administrative journey start. They say, well, it's not that simple. Because this is so expensive, I can't just inject a $10,000 medication into your eye because as a doctor, I have to make sure that that vial of medication that I bought, I will be reimbursed for it. Either your insurance will pay for it or you will pay for it or someone has to pay for it. So before we can schedule your first appointment, my back office staff is going to make sure that the coverage is there. Your insurance, if you have it, covers it. If they do, what percentage or amount of it will they cover? Therefore, I know how much our office has to bill you. If you can't afford it, we will talk to you about many financial assistance programs that help you get the financial aid because this is the right medication for you. And sometimes your insurance company will ask us, the doctor's office, to prove that this is the right medication for you, that we've tried everything that are are simpler, cheaper doses that sometimes work with patients. And we already have tried those things, and therefore, we just have to write the proof. And that's called a prior authorization. We have to submit all the paperwork and then make sure that gets approved. Again, the goal here is to make sure that you get the right medication in an appropriate amount of time, but we are also paid for our services and the product that we use on you. And you go, okay, great. So can we get that started? And can I come back tomorrow? Well, no, 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 not that simple. 
a week or two, but give our team that time and we will call you to schedule your appointment. So now you as the patient are taking all of this in. You're taking in this big word called macular degeneration. You're taking in this idea that someone's going to be injecting you in your eyeball. You're taking in the fact that you might need medications at tens of thousands of dollars that you may not be able to afford. Oh, and the fact that you could be feeling better today, but that's not going to be the case because you might have to wait a couple of weeks for the processes to happen. And then there's a line of patients because there could be someone in the back office who does it right then and there, but there's a line of patients ahead of you who they're working through. So there's a lot of these processes that happen. And as they happen, and as we at Infinitus have dug into them, we've realized that over the last 15 years, a lot of healthcare has gotten digitized. For the most part, has happened within the walls of individual entities. So you go to your hospital and everyone's got computers. Those shelves with all the files and folders have gone away and they're all electronic health record system, which is great. Or you go to your insurance company and you can get your claims and your policies in an app or online. But the second these different entities have to talk to each other, that's where the digital connections are still not as good as we'd want them to be. And that's where a lot of transactions, a lot of uh, transfer of information happens over faxes and phone calls. And what we've built at Infinitus is a machine that can make phone calls uh, so that when that doctor needs to figure out what the benefits are for a specific diagnosis or for a specific therapy, they can use us to make that phone call, collect that information, and move that patient forward in their healthcare journey. Very interesting. Before we dive in a little bit more to some of the technology and the role of AI in healthcare more broadly, because I think it's very well suited to some of these back office tasks, I'd love for you to illustrate for us an example of how the Infinitus Digital Assistant could add value in accomplishing a task like a prior authorization just to make this real for our listeners. Absolutely. I think there's a, there's a couple of things that we can talk about. When a doctor's office needs to prescribe a medication that's expensive, they today have a person that picks up and makes a phone call. Instead, we've built connections for them from their EMRs or their CRMs to send that request to us. So instead of making a phone call, they make an API call to our system, which then goes and makes a phone call. And the best way to for your listeners to understand what this is like is to listen to a real call. What do you think about listening to one? I would love to. Let's do it. All right. Uh, what you're going to hear is a real call that was made between our digital assistant and a large insurance company out of the Midwest. And it's on behalf of an ophthalmologist that is prescribing a medication for macular degeneration. Welcome to Provider Services for Blue Cross and Blue Shield of This call may be monitored or recorded for quality and training. Please say or enter your NPI number. One, five, Thanks. Next, say or enter just the numeric part of the member's ID. One, three, one moment while I connect you with a representative. The estimated wait time for a representative is greater than 25 minutes. Please stay on the line and your call will be answered in the order received. Thank you for calling Provider Services. My name is Tracy. How can I help you today? Hi, Tracy. This is Eva calling on behalf of on a recorded line. I'm looking for some benefit information for patient And Eva, what's the first letter of your last name? My last name initial is L. Thank you, Eva. And what is your NPI number, please? The provider's NPI number as And which benefits are you looking for? 
I would like to verify benefits specific to with code J's and administration code for diagnosis E, which will be done in a specialist office. Is prior authorization required for any of the codes? One moment, please. J does require a prior authorization. Do you see an active prior authorization on file? No, I do not. How do you obtain prior authorization? Let me check. Through availability. What is the prior auth turnaround time? 7 to 10 business days. Is the provider in network with the patient's plan? Let me check. The individual doctor himself is not, but the facility that he's affiliated with is in the aware network. Thanks. Is there a copay or coinsurance for code J? One moment, please. Once the deductible has been met, there is a 10% coinsurance on the injection. Can I have a reference number, please? Reference number is going to be S as in sunshine. One last question, Tracy. How was your experience today chatting with me? Excellent. You were an absolute pleasure to talk to as well. Thanks so much for your help today, Tracy. Have a great day. Bye. Bye, Eva. Thank you for calling. Impressive. Yeah, now that's a, that's a call that we do thousands upon thousands of times a day on behalf of tens of thousands of providers around the country. The thing that's fascinating to me is an actual call is somewhere between 37 minutes and could be a couple of hours. And we've trimmed that, of course, for, for purposes such as this, where you don't want to listen to a full call. But imagine being that person who joined healthcare to serve patients, and instead you're in the back office making these calls all day, every day. Maddening. And that's why our wait says patients are so long, I'm sure. Wow. What data set is the digital assistant and associated AI model trained on, and how does this get standardized, updated, and validated over time? When we started the company about four and a half years ago, we looked for many data sets, or any data sets for that matter, of folks performing these kind of phone calls. And we got access to about half a million phone calls done by humans for benefit verifications. And as we poured through them, we realized every single one was done slightly differently. And not because they should have been, but just because humans don't do the same process exactly the same way over and over again. And that was that was fine. We could learn a lot from those, but we decided that the best way to automate such a complicated process was to step back and design a more standardized system. So we've spent all these years understanding the different variations of prior authorization phone calls or benefit verification phone calls and building what we call standardized modules that allow us to then drive not only the automation, but the conversation with the party on the other side, which is the payer side and saying, hey, payer, we're not in this to just automate more and more calls and have machines talk to your humans. We want to be partnering with you as well so that if you can give us that data digitally, we'll get rid of the phone call. Right? There's no reason for our machine to talk to a human on the other side. That's just a step in this direction. The goal here is to standardize how these calls are done, to have a way in which that data can exchange hands. And again, our mission as a company is to create time for healthcare. So the first thing we're doing was unlocking the time on the provider side, but we're also working with the payers to unlock time on their side. So that as they give us the data digitally, their provider advocates don't have to be on the call 
just reading pieces of data out loud. Machines can do that with each other. So interesting. How do you embed that human centricity into the solution such that it doesn't just sound like you're talking to a bot? And how do you tailor your services or your dialogue to uniquely serve different customer groups? A couple of thoughts on this. The first, we have now made over one and a half million phone calls for over a thousand different therapies and about a dozen therapeutic areas. So it's the, the surface area is pretty broad. And as we've done that, we've learned the idiosyncrasies that exist in different niches of healthcare. When you go from oncology to rheumatology to neurology, things are done differently. When you're getting that injection in your eyeball in the doctor's office, the way the benefit structure is, is different than when a neurologist has to refer you to an independent infusion center. So the benefits are for that medication at a third-party infusion center. Some that might be in-network, some that might be out-of-network. We've kind of mapped all of those pieces out to understand how they work. And the second piece here is understanding that the person on the other side, their job is to answer questions and move on to the next case. And so the more efficient you are, the more you're helping them succeed. And we've done side-by-side studies of humans making these calls with our digital assistant, and we found that we're 30 to 35% faster. So by doing that, we're just driving happiness on the other side because that person's able to hit their metrics for the day. What if there's a step in the process that the digital assistant can't solve for? How would that workflow then be triaged to a human representative, say? It's a good question. And every day, the number of interventions, if you will, that we have to make are, are going down as the machines get better. But we've built a very robust human-in-the-loop infrastructure so that if Eva, our digital assistant, ever needs help, there's a way to break glass and say, give me some help. And you can think about it analogously to the self-driving cars that are running around many cities in the country where they sometimes have a safety driver in there where the machine with the car goes, I don't know what to do here. Can you please take over? Since there's so many point solutions emerging in the market, I know that one of the key barriers is proving a value proposition to payers. How would you articulate the main incentive for payers to invest in your solution? And relatedly, how do you track and measure outcomes that your technology is delivering? I think it all goes down to to our mission, which is to create time for healthcare. And so our success is measured by how much time we're unlocking, time that we're unlocking for providers, for pharmacies, for payers, for, for everybody in the healthcare ecosystem. And reducing the time to therapy for patients. And you know, some of these things you can measure in the short term, some things require more lengthier time studies to figure out the impact of it. On the payer side, the ROI is actually pretty straightforward. When we're making a call to a payer call center, we're not charging them for it. We're making the call to them just like someone in the doctor's back office would. So it's a pretty immediate ROI for them to not have to pay for something, but have a call that's 30% faster than the equivalent human call. Now, there's more work that we can do with them to get access to their data when it is available digitally, and we have ways of working with them to really measure if we can get data digitally, how how much shorter do those calls get or how many calls get removed out of the the equation because then there's a clear ROI for them. Now, I'd love to take a step back and touch on what I know is a buzzword for many of our listeners in today's healthcare ecosystem, but also in the world more broadly, AI. Based on your expertise, I think you're the perfect person to help share some thoughts about AI and its uses in the healthcare industry more broadly. So to start, what do you see as the biggest value-add areas where generative AI and other models have the potential to disrupt healthcare today? Why don't we tease those apart? The 
best use cases for AI and then digging it a little deeper onto the best use cases for generative AI. Because I think it's important to understand that machine learning or AI has the ability to do many different things. There's perception and then there's creation, which is very much like humans. We spend a bunch of time perceiving the world, learning from the world, and then we spend a bunch of time creating new things. And there's use cases in both. And when you think about things like perception, it can allow you to understand data, to understand images, to understand text, to understand medicine. And we've seen this in the computer visual world where there's a lot of radiology use cases where you can look at a scan and figure out out of the thousand scans, which 10 are the ones that the radiologist should look at to then make a determination of what happens or sometimes automatically determine what the next step there is. And now we're seeing the same thing in the tech space with all the large transformer models because they're able to go into all the medical charts and figure out, build a summary of what is there in the history of a patient so that when a provider walks into an office to see a patient, they have that consolidated view of that patient's history. Or you're hearing of these digital scribes that can listen to a conversation and take notes and then fill out the notes and sometimes take it a step further and do the coding of that encounter as well. On the creation side, I think, and that's where the generative AI piece comes in. I think there's some very interesting things that are starting to happen. We are, of course, seeing a number of companies going into the life sciences arena and coming up with new drugs, coming up with or surface area for creating molecules and testing them out. There was a company that I heard about yesterday that is creating digital doubles for clinical trials that the placebo group or the control group can be digital doubles rather than patients who actually want to be enrolled in the trial and see whether they can get the, the positive impact of the medication. So we're starting to see that creation side just start to kick in. One of the areas that I think healthcare, not the life sciences side, the healthcare side has traditionally struggled with is how to pilot new technology because they want to pilot new vendors, but they don't want to give all the patient data right away. And with generative AI, I think it's possible to go and create a whole set of data that can be used in a synthetic environment, in a demo environment to do a pilot, to test out the efficacy of a solution before you load up all the, the patient's data, which will allow for faster iteration time, faster uptake of new technology. So there's lots of new things that are happening in all different parts of AI. And how can we use it to improve clinical processes, drug development, administrative processes? And, and that could be on the provider side, that could be on the pharma side, and that could be on the payer side. One of the things that a lot of folks are looking at is how can we use generative AI to understand documentation that is submitted to payers for things like prior authorization? Can we have a machine look through it, look for the needles and haystacks, consolidate that thought process, and then present it to a nurse who makes the final adjudication. Whether it is scheduling your appointment, whether it is replacing that clipboard that you get when you come to your doctor's office, it could be a digital assistant making a phone call or doing it electronically and understanding what's happening, or going into your chart to see, hey, Ankit, last time you came to us, you told us you had a mushroom and a shellfish allergy. Do you still have that? Instead of just giving you a blank clipboard again and, and saying, let's start from scratch. I think there's many applications in the front office as well. And of course, I think in the during the encounter itself and post-encounter with the digital scribes and the automated coding, there's a lot of applications kind of through and through in healthcare. In an era where so many startups and point solutions have emerged to tackle issues related to administrative workflows, but also healthcare more broadly, 
And as technology changes so rapidly, what are some signals that we can look towards to indicate whether a particular solution really has legs and can last or win in the market? I think it's a very important question. I think it's important that those that are buying technology aren't mistaking trying new technology for being kingmakers, if you will, in the industry. I think I last heard there's 8,500 digital health startups and every single startup is trying to raise their hand and convince their first customer or second customer to not only use them, but then use that logo to go get a lot more logos. And so a couple of things that I expect to happen in the next couple of years, one, a lot of consolidation. I think folks that understand how to not only develop the technology, but then deploy the technology in production will have an unfair advantage because there is a little bit of vendor burnout from the buyer's perspective. Every additional vendor I I've heard costs customers a million or so dollars just to manage. That's a huge cost for them. And in a world where you're trying to trim down your costs, the best thing you can do is go to an existing vendor and say, can you also do X? Now that company that's an existing vendor might do that through a partnership or through development. But I do think that that consolidation will happen in the years to come. And if you're on the vendor side, I think it's important to figure out whether you are the puzzle maker or a piece of the puzzle and, and really hone in on what your mission as a founder is, just like you know the mission as a company. Is your mission to have the impact that you're looking to have or to be the one that continues to grow the mission from where it is today to where it could go in the future? How do you, as a business leader, think about continually updating your model as AI continues to evolve in order to keep up with the pace of technological change and stay competitive? There's multiple pieces to building a technology business. I think we often, because of the media, think of an AI solution as the AI model itself. The model is one part of the solution that the customer is buying. They're buying a deep integration to the workflow. They're buying the understanding of the underlying data assets. They're buying support and services that are being provided to them. And if you design the technology solution well, there's an abstraction layer between the rest of the infrastructure and the model itself. And I think it behooves any technology company to constantly be trying out new models and seeing what performs better and how models are either continuing to deliver the highest value or drifting in a positive or negative direction and, and keeping the end customer's value proposition going. It's definitely top of mind for so many of us today. I feel like I can't enter a conference or a class without hearing about AI talked about in the context of healthcare. How have your learnings from Google and the tech industry shaped your role as an entrepreneur in terms of the way you think about some of these decisions and these trade-offs? I think there's a few different parts to this. Part one, by working at companies like Google and some of the other startups I've been involved with, the value of a brilliant team is something that is constantly top of mind to me. That's what makes a lot of Silicon Valley startups so different than every other set of enterprises out there. You have brilliant minds that are looking to have an outsized impact on industries that they are now getting involved with. Most of our product and engineering team did not come from healthcare, but they are very passionate about having an impact in the healthcare ecosystem. The flip side to that is healthcare is unlike a consumer 
start a company where you can't just build something, launch something, and scale something in a couple of weeks or a couple of months. The sales cycles are long. The folks that are making those decisions do so by very detailed ROI analyses, but also deep relationships. And that just takes time. One of my mentors once told me, Ankit, you love to run fast, but remember, it takes one year to get one year's experience by definition. And I think that's very true in healthcare. And the third part is for us, it's been very humbling to have a lot of folks from the world of healthcare join us on this journey. And that's a critical part of us being able to understand the pulse of our customers, of the industry, and make sure that we're not just thinking as as one of those companies that is the outside technologist coming in to change healthcare. It's thinking in conjunction with those that are healthcare insiders saying, how can we improve this? Because yes, we're all passionate about doing it, but let's do so in a way that healthcare can actually adopt and scale this up. Absolutely. And I think the organic nature of your Spark story really speaks to exactly the way in which you were trying to solve for a real problem that real humans were facing, rather than just trying to replicate or overlay a technological process on something that really did not need one. So I, I appreciate that about your story. What do you think are some of the biggest areas of unmet need in the healthcare market that still need to be solved for and perhaps could benefit from the use of AI or other technology? I think there's a lot of time spent on many processes, clinical, administrative, research, that folks are either taking information from their minds and documenting them or taking information in disparate systems, consolidating and then sharing them with other individuals, other businesses, et cetera, and just building those connective tissues across the many different parts of healthcare so that information can flow freely is something that's desperately needed across healthcare. And I think the power of modern AI technologies is to be a very efficient translation layer. And that's where I see the most upside in the next few years to come. How do you reduce friction? How do you reduce burden so that those in healthcare can really do what they originally came there to do, which is to deliver healthcare. Do you see Infinitus playing a role in that more broadly moving into the future? And I guess put differently, what is your biggest aspiration for the company? The reason our mission is to create time for healthcare is because it is very broad. It's not meant to be just time on phone calls, it's time in general. And I think there's a number of efforts within the company to extend what we do from purely phone calls to things that happen before phone calls, things that happen after phone calls so that we can make healthcare about healthcare again. I'm very inspired by that. I think we'd all benefit from having our clinicians freed up to do what they're actually meant to do. And whether that's on the behavioral health side or in terms of specialists serving high acuity patients, I think to make healthcare more human-centric and actually more patient-centric will rely on some of these back-end tasks being displaced. As an entrepreneur in the dynamic and complex healthcare industry, do you have any advice to leave our listeners with, especially those who may be looking to launch their own companies in this space and who may have a similar spark story? I think the best piece of advice that one of my board members gave me about two years ago was to accept that if you want to accomplish your vision, it's going to be a long game. I think it's very easy to go for a quick burst of flame, but sometimes that flame grows very large. Sometimes it flames out. And I think in healthcare, a big part of having a long-term impact is just being there for the long term and committing yourself to your mission, to your vision, 
and making sure that you can build a business that is self-sustainable is is very important. So when we think about Infinitus as a business, we're constantly thinking about how do we make this a business that isn't dependent on outside capital and how it can turn the corner and become profitable and actually scale in a sustainable way. Thank you so much, Ankit, for your time today and for your words of wisdom. It was a pleasure having you and looking forward to seeing what you and Infinis go on to do in the future. Thanks so much, Rachel.